This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hiya, I'm Jan Brereton and this is Everybody is a Poem. It's a podcast of poems, people and profanities. So they're unfiltered conversations about all things real life. So yes, there will be swearing. I always put that message in for me, Ma. <laughs> uh, before I introduce my guest for this episode, don't forget you can support me further by subscribing to the Headstuff Plus Network. It's where you can get exclusive access to Behind the Lines. Now that's a serialization of the poems from my book, What Day Is It? Who Gives a Fuck? And in each episode, I'll share all the secrets, the people and the places that inspired the poetry in my little yellow book. So you can go to headstuffpodcast.com forward slash register to find out more. My guest today is Philly McMahon. He's here beside me. I'm so excited. Um, I don't have a clue about GAA. I'll just tell you that for starters. That's good. That's good. <laughs> so we won't be talking about that. Good. But apparently it's great because you've won. Eight All Ireland's. Yeah. Um. Anyway, the first time I heard of you, I was just saying to you there, mm. was um in two thousand and seventeen, I think, um, and actually my own brother, uh, Alan, who I write about, um, he was in addiction for most of his kind of, I mean, his teenage life and then into his adult life, and uh, he just uh, died at home. And um, it was only me and him. And I think I heard you on the radio. You'd probably just published your book. Yes. Uh, the choice. The choice. Yeah. Yeah. And it just stopped me in my tracks because it was the first time I'd ever heard a sibling speak about the experience of being in a family or having a sibling go through addiction and then to lose them through addiction. Um, so it all, I was just like going, oh, my God, who is this fella? You know, yeah. and then it was GAA. I was like, oh, here, I don't have a clue. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I think there was one thing that you mentioned um. And it was it was about the idea of tough love that mm. always struck me because I think and I could and I'm paraphrasing probably, but, um, you know, you were kind of like it's that kind of thing that you're always taught or it's always kind of presented to you when you're within a family or if you have a sibling who's in addiction about this idea of being tough mm. and doing things that are hard to try and teach them, you know, the right way to kind of be and. I don't um, I think you you were saying you know it's just love actually yeah. it doesn't need to be tough yeah like know? I suppose society educates us wrongly about people that struggle with addiction and I suppose that hasn't changed over generations and that won't change unless we drop the stigma and shame around it by changing our drugs policies because mm. if it's against the law it's going to be stigma and shame it, isn't it you know when you bring it to your family home it's going to be a, a negative thing but even more so in today's society when we have social media and everything else, it's it's even worse that we think it's okay to point the finger at the most vulnerable in society, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So, for me, um, I was like a lot of siblings in, in this country and probably around the world that, you know, it's because of the law, it's, it's a shameful thing. It's an embarrassing thing. I definitely was in, you know, environments particularly sports environments where I'd be always questioning why is my family the one that has someone that's struggling with addiction and mm. and why do they not not even know if they had you know so that's the education we have and I think since I've spoke about it and I've had a lot of people come to me and and say it was it was refreshing to hear that side of things and as you mentioned that there's not many people 
that will come out and, and speak about it. I think that's my purpose now is to use any kind of sporting profile I had to build that awareness that what we've been taught is actually not the right way. So like I've written poems about my brother. There's, mm. there's, a, there's a section in the book called Him. And and one of them is is it's him talking to my mom, mm. and then the other one is called Get Up the Yard. Do you know what? It's like I kind of think I'm getting to know my brother better now, even though he's not alive. It's like the addiction isn't there now to be a barrier. Now I'm kind of looking at him as a person. Yeah, I write about him and talk about it, and I'm open about it again because it's that kind of shame that. Mm. I just think that if there's people like you talking about it and hopefully people like me as well, that, you know, it's not an easy thing to admit to. It's not an easy thing to be around. But the shame is the thing that kind of perpetuates it in a way, isn't it? Yeah, it does. Definitely. Uh, Like all it it took for me when I was a kid was to somebody, you know, when I was having a bit of banter with one of of the lads calling me a junkie, that kind of just completely put a, a blank over me in terms of even having banter or have being confident around certain people really? or being around me brother like you know so yeah um i suppose for your listeners like it's it's important for them to understand that you know it's when you have a loved one that's struggling with addiction like it's um when they're out of sight you're at ease a little bit better which is is the probably the ultimate kind of negative kind of thing that happens when when this like so when we sent john to london to you know get out of the environment to ballymore and, and to not associate with people that he knew that were taking drugs or giving him drugs or he was going to get drugs off mm. that would help him and i did he didn't want to be nobody wants to be no. struggling with addiction nobody does it i've very rarely ever heard someone saying i love being yeah addicted to drugs they might like drugs but that takes them away from a lot of the time psychological pain they have from trauma when they were kids. Yeah. And we've, we found out a lot later in John's life that he struggled with schizophrenia, like, you know, so there's a lot of people undiagnosed with mental health disorders and yeah trauma and, you know, there's, there's a lot of abuse going on, domestic violence and stuff like that, sexual abuse. And you don't know that those things are happening to those people for years and years and years. And, and then, you know, as I said, society then just says, no, it's, a bad choice they made and it's up to them and they need to find a way back themselves mm. so it's kind of in the grand scheme of things it's totally wrong it's not like when we have a thing called social exclusion which basically means you have a majority and a minority in a, in a society mm-hmm. that's very 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 problematic for society because what you have is people pointing the finger at a minority not realizing that they've created the problems yeah so who who who's created the problems in society? Who's created addiction? Who's created trauma? Who's created mental health? Yeah. It's human beings. Yeah. So we are the issues. We are the problems. And we need to be able to be the people that says, hold on. If we don't bridge the gap between the social inequality that we have, this is going to get worse. So we have a, we have a war on drugs across the world. And now we have, in, in this country, a war on social class. Mm. because every social class in this country will struggle with addiction. There's people in 
you know, upper class, middle class, lower class that will struggle with addiction. Yeah, 100%. Addiction yeah. doesn't understand social class. It's a great leveler. Yes. It really is. Uh, well, the question is, well, why is a lot of people in prison from lower class communities? Why are communities that are impoverished, highly represented in prisons? Why are minorities represented in prisons like the traveling community? And that's because those communities uh, don't have the resources and the finances to deal with. So therefore, it's a war on social class. Okay. So if we don't drop any, if we don't level the playing field by changing the policy for people that are struggling with addiction, well, then we'll always have this issue and the prisons will get full, more fuller. And it's it's not that we don't have an example. It's not that we don't have any precedence to go, well, how do we know this will work? Because we have countries that have done it. Portugal are a prime example of decriminalization. Yeah. Um, their addiction levels, the HIV levels, have dropped massively. Their overdose levels have dropped. Now, they have a multidisciplinary approach to it. It's not just about decriminalization of drugs, mm -hmm. which basically means if you're caught with a substance on the street right now, uh, in Portugal, you'll be basically, you'll be kind of uh, cautioned. You'll be brought to a dissuasion committee mm -hmm. and they'll sit down and say, have you got a problematic drug use? Do you have a problem? And they'll say, yes or no. If they say yes, they'll go, well, would you like us to put you into a program mm -hmm. if you don't okay you're probably dabbling or messing around then that's up to you mm -hmm. that's your decision does the, the policy we have right now uh is basically like a three strike policy so if you're caught with substance on the streets the the police will give you a slap on the wrist basically second time to do the same thing third time you'll get charged okay There's that's here now that's today. here in this country and that will change because but it's just we're very slow at changing here in this country. Mm. So I was a part of the, the um, there was a, a 20, I think it was 2015 or 16, there was a working group developed for basically cha challenging the drug policies that we we had back then. And what came from that was the, the tree strike policy. Now, mm. there's never been a person that I've spoke to that would say, I, gave, I stopped taking drugs because a guard gave me a slap on the wrist and gave yeah. me a caution doesn't yeah, work that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So thinking that the guards are going to stop people taking drugs, that has never worked. Yeah. You know, people are going to experiment and there's probably out of the, the you know, the 90% of people that take drugs, a lot of them won't become addicts. About 10% of them will come, become addicts because they will connect with the drug rather than the trauma or maybe the dislocation or disconnection that they have maybe with a, with a family member or a loved one. Mm -hmm. Like even just thinking about that now, so all through this conversation, I was thinking about my brother as well. Mm, Do you know mm. what I mean? And you're kind of, it's not, I mean, you kind of look for, you kind of look sometimes, like you say, for like, what's the reason? Why was that the path that he mm. took in a way? Your brother was older than you, was he? Jo yeah, he was seven years older than me. Yeah. 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 My yeah. brother was younger than me. Okay. And that was always the thing. You'd be like, well, I had the same mom and dad. We were in the same house. Mm. He never got any more than I did. I never got any more than he did. So yeah. why? Do you know what I mean? Was that the kind of the path that he took? And and mom always said that, you know, we never wanted to be an mm. addict. And I definitely had, there was, there would be a lot of shame around it and stuff. Mm. And I know mom went to counsellors and things like that, but mm. found she got very little kind of assist for herself in a way. Mm. Um, there didn't, as I think of it, there didn't seem to be a huge amount there for him to support him outside of maybe a methadone program or something mm. like that. Yeah. Like, what do you think of the way the methadone program kind of is? Well, 
I've had a bad experience with the methadone program in this country. Uh, my brother John would have got his methadone in a place called, in Ballymont, called the Red Brick Donbull House. Mm. So John would have had to travel from where we lived. In, uh, we lived in the four-story flats in Salog. He would have to travel by the shopping centre where the guard station was up to, to get his methadone. And he would have been stopped quite regularly. Like So there would have been times he would have questioned himself saying, what is the point? What is the point of me trying to get better myself here when every time I come back from getting me methadone, I'm getting stopped by the guards. And a particular guard was stopping him each time mm. um, that my mum had to go over to the guard station and say, will you stop? Like he's trying to, you know, get into recovery. Stop, stop, like leave him alone. Like. Yeah. Um. So that's, again, that's probably an education thing back then that the guards needed. If they wanted to have less hassle from people that were, let's say, struggling with addiction and maybe had to steal or do whatever, let them go through their recovery period without hassling them or you know tormenting them going through that like mm. so john had to stop going that route and he actually had to travel out his next option was to travel out to bray to get Jeez. methadone so he'd get a massive big bottle of methadone coming back from bray yeah and there's a lot of things that'll happen in the methadone program it's it's nearly like again for people that probably don't understand it it's like it's like going to a chemist, or it's like actually even worse. It's like going to probably a chipper and saying, "Here's me money, gives you, gives me chips, and off you go." Mm. It's nearly the pro- the problem with addiction is not really here's here's methadone that should fix you. Mm. That's what a lot of medical people probably think in this country. But there's a lot of medical t- people think understand that methadone is just to make you more functional, mm. so that you can reintegrate into society. So, for example, in Portugal. As buses that drive around giving methadone, so that like when we when I done my documentary a couple of years ago, mm. we went to see one of the bus the methadone buses, and you had all walks of life walking up to it. Like you had people in suits, you had people getting driving, getting out of cars, like driving. And we actually interviewed a guy in a suit, and it didn't look like he was in recovery from heroin, let's say. And we're like, "How do you function?" He says, "Function really well." He says, "I've dropped right down." If I feel like I'm gonna slip and go back to heroin, I'll just go up me up me dose a little bit and I'll have a chat with me with the doctor here and there's a doctor on site. And there was no judgment. Mm-hmm. Absolutely no judgment. Like it was mm-hmm. everybody got their stuff off they went, you know. Mm-hmm. And what it did was and there was people there that were on a twenty odd years. Wow. You know? So they that was their way of coping with whatever pain they had. Yeah. Whether it be psychologically or physical. Mm. So there's loads of it's very complex, but in a nutshell, it depends on the individual. The methadone programs depends on the individual. It depends on the country also. Mm. Is there is there there should be dual diagnosis? You know, there should be, well, why do you need methadone? Why have you taken heroin? Can we help you with that for Yeah, like a wraparound kind of a service yeah, that Exactly. Yeah. 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 And as you have experienced it, like the family go through this whole process. They mm. go through the pain, they go through the recovery, they go through the whole thing. Mm. And probably one of the reasons that I'm sure you're aware of that maybe you're writing poems about your brother is because when you lose a loved one from uh, alcohol or a substance base that they were struggling with alcohol or substance based addiction you become after four years for some reason they've studies to show that you become an activist in that area really in your own way yeah and they say it's like a special death so it's like when you lose someone from alcohol or drug-related deaths, it, it's basically, from the family member's point of view, it's like losing two people and that's like suicide. Yeah. So they say grievance takes the guts of four to six years, you God. know, from a, 
just even in my experience, like he was younger than me and he always um, it's like, you know, he always dabbled, mm. like even from the time he was like a young teenager. But like, you know, and, and, and Alan was really tall and was always kind of looked older than all of the other kids. So there was this sense of, you know, always hanging around with the wrong crowd or, right. you know, they were all a couple of years older than him. So where they might have been dabbling as maybe 15 year olds, he was only 12 or 13, you know, that kind yeah. of way. And it seemed to just get really quickly serious in a very short kind of space of time. Do you know mm. what I mean? And like poor Alan, my brother, had horrible things happen to him. He was in a car accident and his best friend died. But he was well into addiction when that happened. And yeah. I think what happened after when he was in this car accident was everybody... Not me, though, because mm. I wasn't great with the sympathy with him. I was a bit more the tough love. And I was kind of saying, you know, but you look like he was like this anyway before. Mm. Everyone felt, mm. oh, well, you know, this awful thing has happened to him. And, you know, that, you know, and, and he spiraled even deeper into yeah. the addiction. I never actually spoke to him about it. I always spoke to kind of mom and dad about it. Mm. And then you get the experience of, Oh, I'd be angry with my mom and dad because I'd be like, what are you doing? Like, yeah. but again, and it's only since he's gone and you're just talking about kind of like the whole, the grievance of kind of, or the grief of losing somebody through addiction and stuff. It's like, it's now the addiction is gone now. I can kind of see the person better or something now. I can even see that and I have kids as well. You know, I'd be like, Jesus, like all mom and dad were hoping for was one day he'll, mm he'll he'll be better or one day he'll be back yeah. do you know that kind yeah. of way and he'd be at home i'd be like you're facilitating him yeah we said yeah <laughs> you know it's same. an awful thing to same. accuse yeah. your parents of because like i'm a parent and yeah. you know all they wanted to do was have him home and have and that, him looked after and you that, know that's why it's so important to today's society that we realize that it can happen to anybody and the powers to be when you want to make change you know, you have to be dissatisfied with something. Yeah. You know, you have to be really at a certain point to make change in, in anything in life, in any aspect, you know. And if your son or daughter right now was to go that route, what, what's the best possible route back for them yeah. in society? And that's what has to be asked. That's, that's, yeah. that's what has to be changed. And we don't have that. We actually have the best route to push them further away. So for people, again that are listening in, that are going through the same process we went through. As a family member, stop thinking that you, it's your responsibility. Mm. It's not. It's mm. not your addiction. Yeah. Stop thinking that ultimately it's up to you to change it because it's not. Mm. And that's the crucial information that we get wrong. We think what I'll do now, whether it be tough love or love, is going to have an impact on this individual. Ultimately, stop him. Mm. It's not. That mm. individual has to hit rock bottom. Mm. That's the only answer I've been given to hundreds and hundreds of... It's the question I always ask somebody that when, when, they, when they've when they gone through into that period of recovery, like, how did you do it? I hit rock bottom. Really? So they ultimately have to make the decision. They ultimately have to take responsibility. The reason why tough love doesn't work is because when they do that, they must have support. Yeah. So there's loads of different addictions in society. You know, you've got porn, you've got uh, social media, you've got uh, gambling. 
you've got so much food, right? Addiction around substance-based addictions are the easiest ones. Mm. You know, that's probably ironic to say, but because they're really hard and some of them lead to death. But ultimately, when you are struggling with, let's say, a substance-based addiction, you find out you've got a problem fairly quickly, don't you? Mm. So all you need is these two things. Hit rock bottom and have the support and resources to help you get out of it. Mm. And that's, it sounds very simple. It's still very complex, but people have addictions around food for years and have a heart attack and not realize, or, you know, wait till they get to the doctor and the doctor says you have diabetes or, you know, you've cancers or you've got whatever, autoimmune disease, whatever it is. But yeah. addictions, you find out you've got a problem fairly quickly. Yeah. So if you are somebody that's hit rock bottom, and you don't have the family support because they're still using tough love or it's like, go on, you made this mistake yourself, do it yourself. They will just go back on drugs. Yeah. And they'll keep slipping and they'll, they'll, they'll find it. They'll find this little self-sabotage button to say, it's easier for me to stay on drugs because I keep letting people down. Yeah. Did your brother, did he have periods where... He was good. And, you know, like I, I'm, I'm only asking because I remember the moments where you'd feel like, oh, God, it's great. Yeah, you know, yeah. wasn't he doing he's great? Back. And you know yeah, what I mean? Back. It was yeah. when I had like when I had the kids first. Oh, it was like, oh, God, he's like a new man. Do you know what I mean? And it, it was it was lovely. And then there's not a better feeling in the world. Is yeah, there? you can't just... you can't. Uh, like I've I've tried to describe that feeling a little bit. But I mean, I've played in front of 82,000 people and, and one all Ireland's like something that I've dreamt of but it still doesn't that way like like John was seven years older than me as I said he took his first hit I found out when I was writing the book when I was chatting to his friends uh, he took his first hit of heroin at the age of 14 wow so if you imagine I was seven when he took his first hit of heroin like so for a lot of his life um, he was taken that I understood you know, that I could remember back to even he was taking drugs like. Yeah. And the one kind of memory sticks out in me that I could actually differentiate John being on drugs, John not being on drugs, was he'd come home at Christmas. Now, when John went on a cycle of addiction, he was working and he'd bring me into town uh, when he got his wages and he'd get me a jersey. He'd mm. always do it. He'd always want me to play football and and ga and stuff like that. And... um. But when he when we sent him to England, when he came home at Christmas, I always made him a point because I was doing well in business. I always made him a point to give him a hundred euro, like a hundred euro no. Yeah. Um, and send and just give him a hug and send him on his way. But I remember one Christmas him coming in and he walked through the door. I was like, I mean, my mom had said, you know, oh, he's doing well. He's completely off methadone now, and he's uh, as most people will know when when your loved ones on methadone, they'll blow out. Mm. When they're on heroin, they go really thin. Mm. This is John looking healthy. Mm. For once, I seen John looking healthy, and you know, you just get this. I don't know. It's it's an incredible feeling. Like it's just a weight off your shoulders is the probably only way I can describe it. But it's it's exhilarating. Like it's just wow. Mm. Life mm. is different now. Mm. It's not. I don't think there's any things that can do that for you. But again, John unfortunately would have went back to England and um, still didn't deal with probably the issues that he had. Mm -hmm. And 
found it very hard to reintegrate, get job, get a job, find new friends that maybe weren't kind of engaged with criminality or what he knew in, in terms of what he was doing in Ballymun. So went back on drugs and he was about five days. He went on the cycle of trying to get off methadone a couple of times. It's mm. hard to get off methadone. It isn't heroin. Which yeah. Is, which is crazy. Like, um, But he was five days away from uh, going into rehabilitation. He'd sent me a letter from my birthday. So my birthday was the fifth and it was, we got, we got a phone call um, on the seventh that he'd passed. Like, you know, Jesus. yeah. And yeah. then he was meant to, I think that weekend he was meant to go into rehab to come off methadone, you know, and we, we don't know if he was going to, that was going to be the one yeah. that got him into yeah, recovery. Yeah, yeah. But I do remember my mom, you know, constantly saying, I think I need to get him home. Like, I want to get him home. I want to get him home. And we were like, "If you get him home, he's gonna, you know, we're gonna kill him." Like you're gonna, you know, it's a worry. It's a worry having him there. It's a worry. Yeah. You know, like yeah, you know, as I said, it was well. Once he's out of sight, you think everything is all right, but it's not. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, I say to everybody, you know, that I speak to around the, it, you know, all the times you've been let down because you again, as you're taking responsibility on, it's n- the money, the things they rob from the houses, whatever it is. Mm. You'd let them do it every day if they were still here. Like I know you would. You'd let them do it. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, they're only materialistic things, really. At the end yeah. of the day. Yeah. Come here. Are you enjoying the show? Check out this other show on the Headstuff Podcast Network. Fad Camp is a comedy podcast about the ridiculousness of fad diets and diet culture, hosted by me, Grace Mulvey, and me, Connor Dowling. If you have a body of any kind, chances are you've crossed paths with at least one of the bizarre diet trends we cover in our show. And between me and Connor, we have done nearly every fad diet there is. Juice cleansing. Fasting. The potato diet. Which is actually a real diet, by the way, and we don't recommend it. So join us as we try to make sense of the madness that is diet culture. Find Fad Camp everywhere you get your podcasts and make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Fad Camp Podcast. My brother... The last couple of years, actually, before he died, he was in a, it was like a commu- like a local community kind of um group, and they paint and like the way you were talking to me there about the work you do, and enjoying the men writing poems and stuff. Um, you know, so Alan would have done like painting and crafting and all writing and all, and uh, like I do remember at the time I was kind of saying I kind of go, you know, what the fuck, like you know, he's just all they're doing is hang- you know, it's another group of the same people in the same environment with the same kind of headspace and you know really they should be getting out and kind of mixing you know in in the community and whatever else but like society doesn't allow them to do that and then my husband said to me he was like shut the fuck up he was like Mm. this year for his birthday it was about 12 cards on the fucking mantelpiece I've never seen cards on your on your ma's mantelpiece before for your brother you know there was friends because at the time I was like you know what help is that to them? They need to be, you know, immersing themselves into society. And as you say, you know, the, the blocks are there and that's not it's as easy as it, it sounds. It's you what know you what learn, I mean? Yeah, it's what your environment, because the, 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 the easiest way of thinking of it is like in terms of your mind is like we're all habitual creatures. Like that's, we're a multitude of habits. That's who we are. But when you think about it, when you are, when you have a perception of your brother and who he's hanging around with, that's based on what you've learned. mm but it doesn't really mean it's right or wrong. Mm. Society then will tell you it's right or wrong based off the rules that we've set out. Mm. But the rules don't fit everybody. Yeah. Rules don't suit everybody. Like, so, for example, if I'm not good at school, what do we do? 
leave me in an island. So you, you're not good in school. Oh, well, hold on. You're not good at um, dealing with your emotions. Oh, well, okay, well, we'll send you to a child detention center because you, you act a certain way or because you don't fit in um, to maybe the, the, the courses that we have in terms of PLCs or whatever it may be. Oh, well, hold on a second. We don't have a good health system here to deal with your mental health. So you take drugs instead. Oh, well, then we'll send you to prison. Yeah. These are all trying, These are all methods of filtering people to fit into society. People, yeah. People don't always fit into society. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's what we need to realize. And again, if you had no education around it's against the law, let's say, to take drugs, you would probably say, there's his friend. Isn't he nice? He got him a card. That's all would happen. Yeah. You wouldn't really think of anything else because your education doesn't yeah. tell you to go that way. Yeah. If you seen someone on the street and they said, I was sexually abused, that's why I'm on the streets. Oh, my God. What yeah. way would you look at them? I know, I just you think... You wouldn't think they're, they're scumbags or they're, no. they're dirty or they're thieves or... You wouldn't, you'd go, jeez, I've empty for that person. Completely. I wish I could help them. Yeah. You know? And that's nine, nine, nine times out of ten, that's that's what people are struggling with. Like, yeah. you know, if you go into Mountjoy Prison, huge amount of the men in Mountjoy have been sexually abused. Not in there, obviously, but maybe under our kids. So, you know, we're talking about impacting and managing addiction in this country. One of the, the key things I think that needs to be done is there has to be huge support put around women and young women in particular and children. Mm. There has to be huge wraparound service for single mothers. You know? Support. Yes. Yeah. And that will impact addiction because that will imp- impact mental health, that will impact trauma. Um, and they're just that, those particular cases. There's obviously other situations. Like you mm. have to remember as well, generationally we've passed down a lot of trauma. From, yeah. From the famine to... TB to you know sexual abuse in the Catholic Church mm. that's all been passed down through generations mm. and we have economic problems mm. with COVID now mm-hmm. and that 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 continues yeah. so we, we think we can stop mental health issues called mental de-stress has been around for generations yeah we used to call people uh in, if you can you know you probably watched films or documentaries or whatever there was at one point people thought uh, people, women were witches when they struggled with their mental health. They yeah. born them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was probably yeah. women struggling with their mental health back yeah. then. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, so oh, I back. would have been on the hellfire <laughs> and back at the yeah. stage. Jesus. Well, I read you the poem actually Go I wrote. It, yeah. Um, so I write like about things that I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this one I wrote about him. So mm-hmm. like, because he died, it was actually the day after his 39th birthday. Mm-hmm. And I sent him a text message. It was 2017 and I was very busy, very busy. Mm. Not the way we're all really yeah. busy. I'm really <laughs> fucking busy. Yeah. And uh, I sent him a text and I fucking, yeah. I regret that I didn't fucking take an hour to even just go out and say happy birthday and have a cup of tea or something. You know what I mean? I sent him a stupid text on a Nokia block phone. <laughs> happy birthday, bro. You know, yeah. very busy. I'll see you, you know. And he texted back and that was fine. But anyway, I try not to cry. That's but all right. it's all right if I cry right. as well. Yeah, yeah, I'm a crier, right. so it's grand. This one is called The Last Conversation We Never Had. How was your day? You're looking well. Are you feeling okay? Do you need to tell someone about the pain you are in? Tell me. Tell me I'm your blister and skin. You think I don't hear you, but I see all your hurt. We all feel it. We live it. 
Mam goes to church and prays every Sunday for your safe return from your pain and your aching. That one day you'll learn to live and to love unconditionally you. To go easy, be gentle after all you've been through. Talk, I listen. No solutions I'll give. I don't have the answers, but I want you to live. When the numbness and dark covers you like a quilt. It's normal your feelings of shame and of guilt. There's much more to you than the tablets you take or the drink that you drown in or the mistakes that you make. I tell you to work on yourself as you are, to accept all your flaws. It's not easy, it's hard, I know, because I'm learning to live with all mine. Someone says, how are you? You feel shit, but say fine. I'd say, talk tomorrow, get some rest, take it easy. I love you, my brother. You'd say, don't be so cheesy. Not much has changed since I spoke with you last. The kids do their sports. Mam still goes to mass. Dad got a new telly. He hasn't mastered his phone. And just like when you were here, they wish you would come home. Thank you. Oh, I'm getting a hug. <laughs> Sorry. I suppose the, that last line about mum and dad wishing that he'd come home. Are you all right? Uh, I only kind of realised when I was saying to you about, you know, when I'd be saying to me mum and dad, you're facilitating him. I've only realised now that they weren't, they were just waiting for him to get better. You know? Mm. I have tissues in my bag. Hang on. <laughs> Could have got this on camera. It would have been brilliant. <laughs> We'll be all right. It's <laughs> all right. We'll be snotting and tearing. <laughs> Beautiful. Well done. Oh, thank you. Amazing. So that's, I suppose it's that, that the last conversation. Everyone has a conversation that they didn't have, yeah, you know, that yeah. they wish they did have. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, the, it's the worst part of it, isn't it? Um, and I think it's for, I suppose, if you lose anybody that, you know, you get that opportunity to say your boys and I did with me dad, you know, I was lucky. Yeah, that's, that, I mean. You know, he was telling me about cancer. We got the chance that we were told he had a year to live. So that was, that was <gasps> nice. But it's, there's no good way and there's always regrets no. regardless, you know. So, yeah. Yeah. um, I just think like for me, you know, special moments like that, you know, is important and it shows the love that we have for them. Like, you know. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm happy that I'm able to kind of talk about him now as well. Um, he'd be mortified. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? well, that's a, I'd always wonder that, like, you know, I had to speak to my family at some some point and I said to them, you know, I actually, it came out when I was playing, uh, I was playing an All-Ireland semi-final and there was a guy that said to me, like, your brother's a junkie and, <sighs> and at that point, he'd passed, like, you know, so, and I spoke in the media, I didn't mention who the guy was or anything like that because we all make mistakes, but and anyway, I said in the media about that and, that's where it all began for me. And yeah. I remember saying to my family, I said, look, you know, I'm sorry I mentioned that. And they were like, no, you don't have to be sorry. Like, we're, you know, it's, it's, and I, I'm sure at that point they were kind of thinking, how do we think about this? How do we, how do we go on now knowing that well, people might be looking at us that we had uh, a son or a brother that was struggling with addiction, you know? And again, about your education. Yeah. But, to this day, I know the family, are, I'm sure your family are, are very proud of 
that we're not embarrassed and it's and if there's people again that have loved ones now and have that opportunity that we don't have i think grab it with two hands yeah 100%. don't be shameful don't be embarrassed you know yeah the choice the book the original one that i heard you talk about on the radio there's a young person's version of it as yes. well is that right yeah we had a lot of parents kind of saying like again going back to the kind of uh the perception of addiction in this country parents were coming up and saying is, is, is it like my kids only this age is it all right for them to read and i'm like as as young as possible get them to read but there was still a hesitancy of will it be all right for a certain age group so we said look we'd loads of different stories left that we didn't put in the choice let's write a fictionist type uh version of the the first book and added the stories that we didn't add in yeah and uh so it's for a younger reader so a lot of schools have asked us to go and go and and uh do talks in them and what we do is we get them to get the books first read the books and then what i go in and then kind of give the whole story what happens you know so yeah so hopefully we're making a difference with oh my god that's so know. important mm. like it really really is mm. it's just also i think to speak openly and freely about it as well is really important because yeah. there's so many secrets that's the other thing i've we had a lifetime of secrets and yeah. i remember saying to my mom it all stops here Tell yeah you. i think i think I, i'm i'm optimistic that there's change coming for this part of society there's enough people that come from certain backgrounds and areas now that are starting to kind of take notice yeah you know? yeah and when when we get enough people speaking for change it, it essentially has to come oh it's just been lovely to talk to you oh thanks very much really enjoyed it i'll have to get you on talk about you next time you can educate <laughs> that's me. boring stuff don't mind that <laughs> come here just before i do wrap it up if I was to write a poem about you today, what would be the theme or themes? There can be a few. What would be the themes? I was thinking of this when you said it to me. Um, like something around finding a purpose through adversity and having some sort of influence in change. Perfect. Yeah. I just have to find something to rhyme with adversity now. <laughs> yeah, that's a long word. <laughs> You might have to help me out with that. Philly McMahon, thank you so much. Thanks for being so generous. And yeah, keep it up. It's amazing. Same to you. Yeah. Thanks for listening. See, we're not really strangers, are we? I'd love to hear any of your thoughts. You'll find me on Instagram at jbgoodtome. And come here in the meantime, you can support me by becoming a member of Headstuff Plus where you'll be able to access some bonus content. It's called Behind the Lines, where I let you into all the secrets and the people and the places behind the lines of the poems from my little yellow book. Go on, I know you want to. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.